0: Alrighty, righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the DealMaker Show. So today we have two co-founders really joining us, you know, for sharing, you know, their journey, sharing what they have accomplished, which is pretty remarkable. And then also the journey, too, of their current business, uh, which is a public company. We're going to be talking about building, scaling, financing, how a pivot, you know, led to really them, you know, getting going, how they've also gone about retention. And really getting great people that also stayed, you know, over the course of time, uh, as well as building a vertical, integrated business. You know, a really interesting and inspiring uh, story, an episode that we have ahead of us. So without further ado, let's welcome the founders of TerraWolf. That is Paul and Nassar. Welcome to the show.
1: Thank you very much. Thank you.
0: So let's start with Paul. So Paul, originally born in New York, but as you say, life got really interesting in college. So give us a walk through memory lane.
1: It's not that fascinating. I went to the Naval Academy at Annapolis. uh, And for a kid from New York, it was a little bit uh, of a change in experience. Um, Graduated Annapolis, uh, went to the Naval Service, became a anti-submarine warfare officer, served at sea for almost four years, ended up as a... Naval aide to the secretary of the Navy. Um, and, and I think I learned a lot there about the exercise of restraint, um, risk-reward, um, how important discipline was in terms of prosecuting a business plan. Um, and, and I you know when I left the service, I went to Salomon Brothers. I became a trader. Um, and then uh, after a couple of years, I joined Marvin Davis, where we applied a lot of valuation uh, methods that we had used in trading to include in valuing derivatives uh, for the early stage of the oil and gas derivative markets, uh, which was pretty exciting.
0: One thing that you were alluding to earlier was a uh, discipline, no, when executing a business plan. You know, and and what the Navy, you know, actually taught you. Can you double click on that? You know why you know that discipline was so important, and how do you think that it has served you? You know later on.
1: So you know in the in the navy, I you get reviewed periodically, and and one of the comments in one of my reviews from my skipper was that Prager had a sense of outrage, and um, and so he would come with an opinion, and then he was tenacious in seeing it through, and and the problem is, it's, there are fifteen million reasons why you shouldn't do something. It's harder to find reasons why you should, but when you do, you got to do it. You got you to assume acceptable risk reward standards, and then you got to stay the course. And I think that, um, believe it or not, in the Navy, everyone thinks, oh, you're told what to do. You, you could exercise a lot of initiative in the Navy. Um, and I had great opportunities to do that at sea, served with some fantastic people. Um, and I think in business, you have to have an opinion, you have to be prepared to fight to express that opinion in a correct and proper way. And you have to stay the course. And, and that requires discipline because everyone is shooting bullets at you. Everyone's trying to take anything that you've, you've done right away from you. And everyone's trying to sort of uh, prevent you from getting where you want to go, particularly if you have a unique or novel idea. Um, and and so I think discipline is, is absolutely fundamental to both the good luck I've had in, in, in life and in business, but also the success of our business.
0: So let's talk about going at it on your own. Let's talk about Beowulf. How does the the idea of really going into business and venturing on your own? How did that come about?
1: You know, when when I when I left the um the Navy, I told you I went Solomon Brothers and Marvin Davis, but I, I was fairly entrepreneurial and um in fact at the time, Goldman Sachs was representing Montana uh, Montana Power Company, which was converting over into a telecom. I think it was Touch America, um, and it was shedding some of its power assets. So I ended up bidding for their um, their power, unregulated power subsidiary, Continental Energy Services, and I was bidding against big big corporations, Tanaska, you know, just real big power companies, and I just. Was representing myself and a couple of people that were with me then, and are still with me today. By the way, Douglas Halliday, Jimmy Notaris, um, and and bid in a in a Wall Street, if you will, house sponsored auction process where we had to deliver uh, the ability to to demonstrate the ability that we knew how to value the asset that we could pay for it that we could afford it, and it, it took a lot of scrambling. It took a lot of guts. It took a lot of relationship management. Um, but we succeeded. We ended up buying uh, Continental Energy Service in auction, beat out a bunch of other much higher bidders to include Enron was a bidder in that process. Um, and then we had the basis, an asset basis with people that we then were able to scale. So we then took that and we bought the unregulated power subsidiary in Montana Dakota Utilities, uh, also another Goldman Sachs process um, where we were both the best bidder, but a shrewd bidder. And, and we made we did very well on, on both those assets. I mean, there were a number of power plants in them. We fixed them. We kept the people. We sold some. Uh, we refinanced others. But it was all about um, staying on message, which was contracted power generation at the time.
0: So obviously, Beowulf is saying what really sparked um, you know, the two of you guys, you know, at the end of the day to uh, come together. So before talking to that, now we're going to reverse back engineer again. And we're going to go with Nazar because everything started in India. So Nazar, born in India, but then eventually you come to the U.S. So talk to us as well about, you know, the the early days for you.
2: Sure, sure. Born in India, but raised in the States, um, you know, typical immigrant story. You know, my father came to, to study in the United States. Um, we ended up in the Midwest, as far away from India as you could think. You know, geographically, uh, climate-wise, socially. Um, my father was a, a lifelong student. He did a, a bachelor's, a master's, and a PhD before he decided he wanted to become a, a medical physician and did an MD. Um, and throughout that, my mother, you know, was you know the main breadwinner in the family, and so she was working. And when she had the chance to not work, she couldn't really sit at home, and so she started a business. And so from a young age, I saw how businesses were formed and created. My mother's you know, just a high school graduate, but she was able to kind of take a business and, and build it up. And so that was, you know, my childhood, junior high school and high school where I saw, you know, what my mother did.
0: What about the ambition, you know, to and, and the drive that you got from seeing your parents coming to this country to really provide a better future, you know, for, for you guys, for the family? I'm sure that that shaped you quite a bit as, you know, as a human.
2: Yeah, I mean, it, you know, for them to come to a place where the language is their second language, they don't really understand how the system works, and to kind of just show up and figure it out, I think you know, really um, had a big impact on me. And if you think about entrepreneurship, a lot of the times it's a similar concept, right? I mean, things aren't clear, there's no well defined or well trod path, and you just are out there kind of figuring things out. And so seeing how they were able to just show up and, and figure things out, you know, for, for themselves and for their family. did have an impact in how, you know, I approach things as well.
0: So it sounds like uh, then after that, you went to UPenn and then New York City, you know, is where everything started for you during the early days of your professional career. Now you did the investment banking, you know, there mainly. What what would you say caught your eye about investment banking? It was more, you know,
2: I'd worked in, after graduating college, I worked in a job for six months. And. Quit, you know, because it wasn't for me. That was in the banking space. Tried to do something entrepreneurially, that didn't go well. You know, spent a year um, trying to start a business in the student housing space. That 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 we failed at. You know, my my partner and I at the time, you know, a friend from college, failed that. Then went back to work. And so, you know, what banking really provided was more of a network and a skill set. You know, the ability to to work. You know, amongst you know peers who were you know active in capital raising and, and structuring deals, and also then creating a network. And so. I got back into it more because I needed a reset than necessarily that's what I wanted to do. Um, And I was only there, you know, on the second stint of banking, I was only there for 18 months before I jumped ship again.
0: Now, you were alluding to it, you know, earlier too, about you starting with a friend, you know, something in the uh, student housing, you know, segment. Uh, You know, as the saying goes, you either succeed or you learn, right? So what was the lesson for you to be taken from that experience?
2: Yeah, um, I mean I think if we had if we were any good, I think if we had done investments at that time, it would have been fabulously successful. But what it really came down to was, you know, we didn't have a, a a nuanced understanding of how to put things together. You know, we didn't understand how to raise capital, we didn't understand how to structure debt. You know, we could put a spreadsheet together that looked at a building and analyze, you know, what we thought the cash flows would be, how we could raise rents, but we didn't really understand the nuances of how to bring a business together. And so it was really that experience in understanding that while your idea may be spot on, if the execution and implementation isn't there, it really doesn't do do much for you. And so, yeah, I mean, it was a a good learning experience just to be able to understand, you know, really where where we came up short.
0: So it sounds that the experience also with Piper Jeffrey was short-lived. So uh, why going at it again with a different flavor with Evercore? I
2: need a reset. I mean, I was 22 years old, had no experience, no money. And so you know, that's a a good way to kind of get back in the game is is to go to an institution that has, you know, a good reputation and brand and you're working with, you know, smart, driven, ambitious people. So I think there's a tremendous value in having the ability to kind of plug into a network like that.
0: So eventually you receive a a call or you're in a conversation with Paul, you know, which is uh, Evercore was uh, ultimately what allowed for your guys' paths to cross. But one day, you know, there is a you know, Paul, you know, that tells you, hey, you know, uh, when you want to do real business, you give me a call. What did he meant with that and what happened next in Asar?
2: Yeah, I was I was sitting at my desk and I still remember the day he showed up at the door to the to the office. He said, Hey, I said, turned over, said, Hey, how are you doing? You know, I'd met Paul a couple of times. Um, he asked me a few questions on how I was doing was happening and while he was leaving he said, Hey, listen, you know, when you really want to to have fun doing business and and engage in real business, you know, give me a call. And, you know, Paul, you know, when you meet Paul, I mean extremely charismatic. um, and, you know, you're just attracted to him. And so, you know, I'd spent some time with Paul, got to understand his background and where he'd been in business. And really I think what he was saying to me is is hey if you really want to try to build something, you know, give me a call and, you know, we can kind of, you know, go at it. And that's it didn't take much more than that in whether I was naive or, you know, really optimistic or whatever it may be. Um, You know, there was, I think, you know, even from that conversation an affinity that, you know, really resonated with me. And so I didn't really tell this to Paul, but, you know, I thought about it, you know, and again, I've been at a job. I quit after six months. I go try to do something. I fail. I go back to a, a more traditional job and then do I really want to jump ship again? And, um, first job, I was only there six months, you know, I, I quit. And the managing my, my director who I, you know, reported to said, if you just wait six months, you know, you will get a bonus. And I said, I, I understand, but you know, I'm not really here just for a year's bonus. If I don't want to do it, you know, I'm not going to be here. And at Evercore, again, I kind of left after 18 months, similar situation, you know, if I'd saved another six months, I could have gotten another bonus, but, you know, part wasn't there. And so re- it really was more with you know trying to figure out how I could be at a place where I could, um, you know, build something. And to Paul's credit, from the first day on, Paul never really treated me like an employee. He treated me like, you know, a friend and a partner. He said, go figure things out, you know, and obviously he guided me. He mentored me. Um, he was there to discuss all of these things. But, you know, from a ver- very early age, you know, he also gave me the ability to try to figure things out. So um, so that's what I saw. And that's kind of what what I jumped at.
0: So obviously you figure things out. And finally, you know, you join Paul, and here you guys are, you know, working together at Beowulf. I guess the question there is: How did the, you know, perhaps like seeing the market and taking a look at the market, how did that, you know, perhaps, say, uh, created some pivots and some opportunities for you guys to ending up, you know, uh, taking action and 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 really bringing Terra Wolf to life, Paul?
1: Yeah. I just want to go back to your last question with Nazar, because I think there's an important element here for an entrepreneur, which is it's all about character. You know, uh, these days when you hire people, 200 lawyers are involved, lots of beatings, all sorts of contract terms. Nazar just showed up in our office one day. My assistant came in and said, there's this tall fella here. And I asked him who he is. And he said, his name is Nazar. And I asked what he does. And he said, he works here. Mm-hmm. And that was that was the agreement that Nazar and I have had. And the only agreement, oral agreement that Nazar and I or written that we've lived with for the last 20 years. I mean, and, and I would tell you that uh, it's true also downstream from us with the rest of our leadership team. There aren't these fancy contracts with promises here and promises there. And we work as a team and you have to have the right people and you have to like each other. You have to trust one another and you got to be able to sort of keep it together with when things are great and when things aren't so great. So I was very fortunate that when Nazar came, uh, he he shared. We were simpatico in that in that regard. In terms of your your question, I'm sorry to have gotten sidetracked. you know, we were in the power space and and we were in an area of the power space, which was it was pretty narrow. Right. We we were in contracted power generation. So we would own a power asset. We would source fuel on a long term basis. We'd sell the electricity on a long term basis. We would finance it. And then we would operate the facility. Um, but power started to change and evolve. And and the people that bought power would would changed the terms on which they wanted to buy it. They didn't want to have 20-year deals. They wanted short-term deals. Some wanted to just pay spot market prices as opposed to long-term fixed prices. So it made it sort of untenable for us to carry um, to carry these assets and work for a small margin because it took the whole risk-reward equation out of whack. Um, so it was in that in the realization of that, that we were constantly searching for, okay, what's the next opportunity? And one of the opportunities would be, we would develop our own power plant. So we'd go into sort of the early stage development where you could create a larger margin. But another opportunity was on the backside of this power plant, which is what's what's happening with the electricity and who are you selling it to? And NASA was early on an adopter. Of, of Bitcoin, I mean, really early on, um, and and suggested that we could ultimately sort of take our electricity, which is it's it doesn't really have a storage component to it. You know, they they keep talking about batteries, but you re- you really can't store electricity efficiently for the most part. And his idea was let's turn it into Bitcoin, because on the margins, that's the leading the leading cost of manufacturing Bitcoin, and then we have something that's valuable and good and also portable. And, and it was in that that led us into a, a trade where we basically did that for another company in the space. We built out a data center, we sold them our electricity, we rented them land, and we operated a facility. Uh, they only had three employees. We did all the rest of the work. And, and we took a significant equity position in the company. And that's how we learned about Bitcoin mining. And it was- in- it was in that endeavor that we decided, we now know how to do this. Now we wanna do this for our living. Let's do it ourselves and let's take all the lessons learned from doing it for someone else, optimize, get better, and let's let's do our own company.
0: And that's terrible. Hey guys, so pardon the interruption here. So I gotta tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, You don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieverson, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a Series A stage or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid-cap type of um, cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com. And we would love to take a look at helping you out. So, now when we're talking about our own company, TerraWolf, Nazar, for the people that are listening, what ended up being the business model of TerraWolf? How are you guys making money?
2: Fundamentally, we are, we mine Bitcoin. So, we uh, produce, we procure power, we procure electricity at the lowest cost possible. TerraWolf is a zero carbon Bitcoin miner, uh, meaning almost all of the electrons we consume come from zero carbon energy sources, hydro, nuclear predominantly. Um, We run them through a bunch of machines um, that are dedicated to specifically mine Bitcoin and produce Bitcoin on the back end. Um, In our last month, you know, we, we generated about 350 Bitcoin, you know, last month. Kind of going forward, we should be hitting about 500 Bitcoin a month, you know, in the next, you know, Couple months here. So we are a producer of, of Bitcoin. You know, that's kind of what people look at. But if you really kind of peel the onion a little bit, you know, fundamentally we're a converter. And that was what we were as before when we were in the power business. As Paul had mentioned, we were procuring f- fuel, whether that's coal or gas or kind of the wind or the sun, um, running it through a turbine and generating electricity. Fundamentally, we're, you know, converting a fuel source, running it through a, a turbine and a generator to, to produce electricity. And so Bitcoin mining is effectively the conversion of a kilowatt hour of electricity. You run it through a machine called NASIC and you generate hash, which you know translates into to Bitcoin produced. And so again, fundamentally we are a converter of of one product into you know this global commodity called Bitcoin.
0: And and also how has it been, you know, Nasar, just to double click on that too, uh, that advantage of you guys being able to build this as a really vertical, you know, integrated type of operation?
2: That's critical. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, our view and what we tell, you know, people is that Fundamentally, the mining of Bitcoin is an infrastructure play and understanding how to procure power, how to locate loads to to uh, consume power is critical to the efficient and low cost production of, uh, of Bitcoin. And so the team that we have, you know, Paul, myself and, and the rest of the team is the very same team that developed and operated known power plants. Um, and so that very same skill set of understanding how the grid works, how to connect loads to the grid. Um, that very same skill set is relevant in, in what we do with respect to Bitcoin mining. And, you know, we have been able to, you know, we've probably put up 400 megawatts of capacity in the last few years um, to mine Bitcoin. And I would say, you know, of any group that's out there, that's probably, you know, top three or four, you know, kind of, you know, nationwide in terms of, you know, how much you know infrastructure has been put up by, by a group. And so that same skill set, that same understanding of the supply chain for the equipment, for the transformers, you know, distribution panels, is all of the same work that goes into putting up a Bitcoin mining facility. And so that vertical integration um, is key to how we produce Bitcoin at the lowest possible cost.
0: So I um, I see that you guys are listed on NASDAQ, you know, and I believe that you guys have raised in over $400 million. What has been the experience, too, of capitalizing the operation and going, you know, through the different cycles, Paul?
1: Yeah. Um, listen, it, there's a big difference between running a private company and running a public company. And um, when, you, when you run a, a private company, you, you take a view uh, and you focus on execution. When you run a public company, um, you you take a view, but you need to be mindful of the perception of of everything you do. Um you don't want to really focus the CEO on your stock price, but at the at the end of the day, it is important um, because it, it's something that shareholders look at and, and will judge you on. And so uh, I think being aware of every every step along the way, and it it cuts time in in half and half and half and half and half. Every single thing you do. You're really doing it. In much shorter time bites, because um, you can't just say, "Hey, this is what we're going to do. We're going to go off and build it, and then six months later you show up." You're in a very competitive environment. You're being judged all the time, and perception is important. So that leads to you got to be able to communicate, and and I think that um, we have sort of I think led the way in terms of our financial transparency in what is you know nascent space. Um, And I think that's because we have a fantastic CFO, Patrick Fleury, and Chief Strategic Officer, Terry Langlis. Um, So I think communication is the next part of it. And then you have to lead. I mean, you have to be able to sort of do what you tell people you're going to go do. So what we've tried to do is be very conservative in a space that's, by the way, not so conservative, and tell people what what we're going to do and then focus on delivering on it. I think uh, over time that's that's caused our investors to continue to come back um, and bolster our our uh, shareholder community. So I think I think those are the big lessons learned for me. Um, and again, um, a public company is a great privilege because you've you've got a fiduciary duty to your investors. It's an honor, um, and you don't want to disappoint. So you're all in. You know, this is, this is, it's not a job.
0: It's a lifestyle. I hear you. I hear you. Now to double click on that, Paul, you know, obviously, you know, with investment, there is a, as you were saying, you know, it's a fiduciary duty, but also they're, they're betting too on a vision, right? And, uh, and I think that the vision is not just applied to the way that you onboard investors. It's also applied to the way that you onboard employees and then also customers. So with that being said, Imagine if you guys were to go to sleep tonight, and you wake up in a world where the vision of Terra Wolf is fully realized. What does that world look like? Let's start with Paul.
1: Well, you're starting with the, the body puncher here. The visionary is Nazar, but but for me, I will tell you that um, our shareholders are happy. We have retained all our employees. We continue to scale our business so that we're 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 making Bitcoin at the lowest possible and most competitive price. Um, we remain zero carbon because I think that's an important part of our vision uh, that no one else out there has truly embraced. I mean, w- we were in the power business; we had every kind of power asset. We we set up TerraWolf to actually mine Bitcoin zero carbon. So we think it's a good thing because we think Bitcoin's really good. It gives it, it's 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 an important to have money that's not controlled by some government's dictation on monetary policy, but we're also doing it the right way. So I think that's an important element. And then I think that we've probably added other data center, you know, optionality to our facilities because I think that the world is about data. Data is unbelievably valuable and 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 we want to be the best at the lowest cost compute time. So I I want to do exactly what we're doing. I just want to scale it, and I want to do it with the same people and at the lowest possible cost, and at zero carbon.
0: So, Nasar, feel free to expand. Sure. Um, you know, when
2: people ask, you know, when you know, why should you invest in Terra Wolf, and you know, I think there's a a couple of large macro themes that are that you're playing, you know, one obviously is Bitcoin, right? I mean, we, we mine Bitcoin, we produce it at a low cost. Um, and if you are bullish on your view of Bitcoin, you know, there's, there's, there's value to be had there. Um, but in addition to that, you know, what really brought us into the space is that, you know, if you think about just the concept of electricity and its importance in driving economic development, prosperity, kind of wealth, you know, power and electricity is critical to that. Um, and, you know, you pick kind of, you know, what your modern convenience is, you know, there's some, you know, touch, you know, to power and kind of power supports that. And, you know, what's happening with respect to power is, is that, you know, there is a massive technological shift occurring on how that power is produced. You know, if you go back 40 or 50 years ago, you know, you had a system of resources that were dispatchable, you know, coal and coal assets initially, then kind of, you know, with the onset of natural gas, natural gas resources, where, those assets were dispatched to meet the changes in um, the demand. You know, on any given day, you know, demand of power uh, is very low at two in the morning, and at two in the afternoon, it's kind of close to its peak. And every single day, you go through that same cycle. And every season has its own, um, you know, specificities around it as well. And when you think about how that system was developed, it was developed to meet the peak demand, right You want to be able to have power available when the system is at its highest, and so that's when it's either you know really hot or really cold, just depending upon where you are. But that means by definition there's a ton of um, flex in the system you know the the, the delta between you know, what the demand is at two in the afternoon is you know two times what it is at two in the morning, and all of that's fixed cost and so the other thing that you're really playing with TerraWolf, right, is this transition that's occurring, you know, with respect to production of energy, which is critical to, you know, every kind of facet of modern life. And the cost of producing that and the source of that is just changing. Um, again, there's a big concerted push to decarbonize it. You know, TerraWolf is a zero carbon energy miner. And so fundamentally, you know, within that, we are also leading the charge on how the energy grid is transitioning. And if you think about the size of the electricity market, it's massive, not just in the United States, but in jurisdictions, you know, all across the world. And fundamentally, there's a shift kind of ongoing there. And so, you know, if I were to wake up, you know, tomorrow, and Terrell has realized, you know, all of its, its goals, you know, fundamentally, we are a leader in kind of how that transition's occurring. And we are a leader in how loads should be integrated back to the grid and how those loads are paid for and compensated and how they interact. And so in addition to all the things that Paul mentioned about you know, mining of Bitcoin and being converting you know, electricity into data, fundamentally there's also this piece of it, You know, again, going back to our entrepreneurial roots where fundamentally we are helping shape how that transitions occurring on the energy grid. And some of the tools that we're using to manage our Bitcoin mining loads are also the very same tools that we think will be prevalent you know, across all uses you know, within the energy space.
0: So, obviously, we're talking about here, Vision. We're talking about the future. Now, I want to talk about the past, but doing so with a lens of reflection. And I'm going to put you both into a time machine, and we're going to go back in time. We're going to go back to perhaps 2020, where you guys were thinking about, you know, the idea of TerraWolf, you know, maybe building something around this Right before you actually execute it, you know, and, and incorporate or registered, you know, officially in February 2021. But let's say I give you guys the opportunity of going back in time and maybe you know, joining one of those conference rooms where you guys were both sitting down and, and brainstorming together about what could TerraWolf or the idea of what would become TerraWolf. You know? And let's say you have the opportunity of entering there and giving your younger selves, one piece of advice before launching TerraWolf. What would that be and why, given what you know now? Let's start with Nassar.
2: It's things don't move in a straight line. So, I mean, I think we have largely accomplished what we thought we would do, but the way we have done that is nowhere close to what I had thought. So, you know, you kind of take the starting point, the end point of where we're at. You could kind of draw a nice line in between those two points. But I think, you know, kind of the course that we've taken to get there uh, is, is, is far more chaotic and volatile. And so just, you know, recognizing that, you know, while you're working towards that goal, things always don't go in a straight line.
0: What about you, Paul?
1: You know, I think time has been a critical uh element to a lot of our uh, challenges, but also success. I mean, when we ended up doing our reverse merger, it was at the time, the peak time for SEC really looking at the space. So we thought we'd be coming out a year earlier um, than we ended up coming out. So when we ended up coming out, we, we came out, you know, right at the time that Bitcoin started to get devalued, which was pretty tough um, because we didn't have the credibility with the market or the space to really communicate how we were going to handle that downturn. So I think thinking about time and how we could have maybe hedged that uh, or how I would hedge it in the future or think about it would have been one thing. And then I, I think the other is we really were very focused on ESG as an important element to the company. And I think it's a very important element to the principles of the company. And I hope to a lot of our shareholders. But in a bear market, nobody values it. In a bear market, nobody gives a you-know-what on the fact that you're doing it the right way and clean and, and all that sort of good stuff. They really care about value of the Bitcoin, period. And so I think that we probably um, we were communicating too much along an ESG line instead of a, hey, we're still the low-cost, most competitive operator out here. So I think it would have changed how we would have communicated with our future public shareholders.
0: Now, for the people that are listening, that are super inspired, that would love to reach out and say hi, what is the best way for them to do so, Nassar? Uh,
2: just reach me email, khan, K-H-A-N, at tarawolf.com.
0: What about you, Paul? Same. It's Prager,
1: tarawolf.com. I mean, we try and respond to everybody. We, you know, it's, it's important. We got it. We have to be able to communicate affirmatively why we're the best company in the space and why people should buy into us. I love it.
0: Well, hey, guys, thank you so much for being on The Dealmaker Show. It has been an honor to have you with us today.
1: Thank you. Thank you.
0: If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business,